Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. How's everybody doing? Today, we have a very special guest, master percussionist, and a member of the genre-defining band Poison the Well, Mr. Chris Hornbrook. Chris, how are you doing? How's it going? Uh, I'm good. All things considered, all the weird shit going on in the world right now, and, (laughs) you know, just... It's hard to find ways to occupy yourself when you you can't go out and have a life or you pretty much can't work. So that's really so, funny. I was going to ask about that. I was going to say I see that. Like I know a lot of like what you do is you you work as a session musician, and I'm like, wait, can you still? Because like you're kind of isolated when you're in the studio, like recording drums. I figured maybe there's a possibility you still might be able to kind of swing doing some of that work. It's not impossible. Uh, I got hit up probably about four or five days ago to potentially do a session, you know, next month or so. Uh, but you mm-hmm. know, uh, it, it just depends the engineer and producer or both that want to work. If they're, you know, ultra crazy about, you know, uh, COVID-19 or if they're like, Hey, let's throw caution to the wind and, you know, jump in and, and, and just do it. Um, cool. So yeah, but obviously touring, is at a standstill things are getting moved you know nothing it's looking like nothing's really going to start picking up until 2021 which is kind of crazy yeah. um, really yeah yeah whoa yeah just because you know there's obviously no vaccination for for, for covid19 and as they especially like in california as they um loosen guidelines they're going to do it very very slowly as the sort of um statistics of people getting it uh you know you reach what is it the you reach the point where uh less people are getting it people are getting over it you know it's sort of like the flatten the curve part yeah yeah yeah, that's that's the term i was trying to think of um they're doing it very very slowly so um they're that's what the projections is that a lot of stuff is just gonna get moved not canceled you know festivals and and dates and it's just everything is gonna get shifted up a year or it's gonna get rebooked but you know, it's kind of crazy to think about that every single band is probably going to try to occupy space and want to get back on touring. So I don't know if it's going to be an oversaturation or, you know, competition in terms of bands being able to get holds on venues. And, you know, that could be good because if, if people want to go out and want to see shows, then great. But also, too, we're, we're looking at things being really, really economically uh, shitty because of the shutdown of everything. So say all these tours are going to be out, but if people don't have money, then who knows, but obviously they're passing all these stimuluses. They're expanding unemployment to everybody. So people might, might have money, but I, I don't know. I mean, we're just going to have to kind of watch this play out. Yeah. Cause it is, does come down to like, it's discretionary spending. Like it's just stuff that people don't necessarily have to spend money on. And it's kind of a luxury. So if people are really hurting, you know, the thing that kind of like I, I saw an article, I, I think it was either yesterday or the day before that. And it was like one of these like super important like financial analysts. And he was saying like, 
Um, I, we're pretty sure that uh, even like major places, like things like you know, for like California, like Disneyland, mm-hmm. he's foreseeing not opening until at the very earliest 2021. Yeah, that's that seems to be across the board for any sorts of entertain- entertainment. You know, like wow. sports, music, theme parks. I mean, yeah, a- it's a big liability, and I'm sure people don't want you know, like a, a potential, oh, I got coronavirus here, so I'm suing the venue to cover my cost oh, type yeah. of deal. Absolutely. Yeah. That's actually, that's a, I was going to say, in terms of liability, like I think that's one of the big things that, um, so I'm a teacher in New Jersey, and they keep saying like, uh, New Jersey's one of those states that are around here that hasn't canceled school for the rest of the year. Pennsylvania has, New Jersey has, Virginia has, Maryland has, like everybody pretty much surrounding us has basically said like no more school for the rest of the year mm-hmm. um, and potentially starting very late or starting with online sessions in September. Yeah. Uh, but uh, New Jersey still says, hey, we might go back May 15th. And, uh, I had so many parents, I had parent teacher conferences the other day. I had so many parents that were like, how, like, you're, you're not even letting, like, really serious, like, almost, like, you know, the next step from essential businesses be open, but you're going to send our kids back to a classroom where there's 30 kids and a teacher and a teacher's aide and yeah. lunch workers and all this stuff. Like, they, it, they were like, live it. And I'm like, well, I, here's the thing. I, I don't think they're going to send us back, but, you know, that's at this point, it seems like everything's kind of in each governor's hand to kind of decide what the hell happens. Yeah. yeah, man, this is unprecedented, right? You know, we, we've never yeah, experienced yeah. this before with, you know, modern technology, where things are at in 2020. The last one was what the Sp- Spanish flu and was it like 100 Eight, years 1918. ago? Yeah, yeah, 1918. So yeah, 102 <laughs> years ago, like, things are obviously dramatically different from then to now. So it's going to be a massive learning curve of um, how to sort of deal with this. I mean, the government is basically saying, hey, nobody can work. They're clearly attempting in some capacity to compensate people. Like I said, opening up benefits for unemployment. You know, Trump's adding like an extra 600 bucks yeah. to unemployment. Mm-hmm. There's the $1,200 stimulus. There's probably going to be another round. There's the, you know, all the yeah. sort of stuff that's going out for businesses. But, you know, what's that going to do for inflation? Because they're just dumping trillions of dollars into oh, the man. economy. I don't yeah, know how that yeah. works in a situation like this. I'm not an economist, you know. It can't be good regardless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I, I'm very curious to see how this all plays out. It's like you said, it's it's unprecedented. I mean, all the problems in life day to day and like all the stuff you worry about. Did you imagine like one day to the next to just be like, well, you can't go outside anymore and you can't work <laughs> no, and you, you might die if you come into contact with the wrong person. It's it's you, insane. You know, what's really yeah. funny is my daughter said the other day she was like, oh, it's like she got up in the morning and I was like, uh, you know, what do you want for breakfast kind of stuff? And she's like, uh, what are we going to do today? I'm like, well, we have schoolwork to get done. And then, uh, we're getting a delivery from the grocery store. So we'll spend some time putting that stuff away and then we can make dinner and blah, blah, blah. And she literally goes, uh, daddy, the world's like a mu- movie right now because y- you kind of like go in and like, you don't know how it's going to end. Like every time you're like, kind of like guessing, like what's going to happen next. And you're like, Yeah. <laughs> do you want some cereal because this is way too heavy for a six-year-old at, yeah. you know 7 30 in the morning like this is not the conversation i expected to have before i had coffee like, yeah wow at all incredible so chris tell us about how you first got into hardcore and some of the initial bands who made an impression on you so my going uh moving from say listening to like 
punk. You know, the skate, mm-hmm. the skate punk of like the mid, you know, mid nineties to late nineties moving into hardcore. Uh, obviously it was a very niche thing in Florida. And, yeah. um, you know, not a lot of people in those particular scenes there. So there was definitely crossover, but there were their own little sort of, you know, tribes. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I just started hanging around with people that were a little bit more into sort of the hardcore thing. And it, Basically, was I was playing in a punk band with uh, Ryan Premack, the guy that plays guitar and voice as well. He was playing bass in the mm-hmm. band, and he was always into like you know progressive rock and and punk rock and, and hardcore and all this sort of stuff. And him and another buddy of his, the original singer for Poison the Well, this guy named Ari Lair, just wanted to start a, a melodic hardcore band. And um, my f- getting into it was literally being introduced when I uh, first join the early incarnation of Poison the Well. And then from there, you know, you start meeting people and, you know, developing friendships and playing shows together and touring and all that sort of stuff. So it was just, it was just literally like a kind of a natural transition from punk to, to hardcore. Um, like I said, especially because in, in South Florida, yeah, there were definitely boundaries, but people knew people from those little circles, from those cliques, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, South Florida became a really big epicenter for hardcore. So many bands, Shy Halud, Strong Arm, uh, Morning Again, you know, yeah. you guys, Evergreen Terrace, the list goes on and on. Did it did it grow a lot? Like, was it existing and it just exploded kind of after you guys became more established? Or was it always there? Like, how, how was it? It was always there. Uh, like you said, bands like Shy Halud, Morning Again, Vertical Omen, Brethren. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of any other bands, hardcore bands that were that were there before before Poison the Well. But those are like, oh yeah, Strong Arm. Um, yeah, those were like the main. Uh, in my eyes, those were like the main foundation bands of the South Florida hardcore scene. And I feel like mm-hmm. we were the next generation. Like they were, they were like you know <laughs> the boomers, and we were like we were like <laughs> we were Gen X. You know, we were the next band to kind of come along and take it a little further, you know, because uh, yeah. that's what it seems like. It seems like every generation that comes hardcore wise takes it a little further than where it was before. Exactly. You know, it was really exactly. funny uh, when I was growing up, there was a record store near our house that I, I had gone in and randomly gotten this comp and it was called uh, 403 Chaos. And it was just all like Florida bands. Mm-hmm. And I remember like listening to it going like, oh, OK. Like there were so many things on there, um, like Reversal of Man, yep. uh, Cavity, Hot Water Music, Drag Body, uh, Birdaville Omen, I think was on it. And a, but I was like, mm-hmm. when I heard like on the hardcore shows, like people are like, oh yeah, there's these new bands coming from South, like from Florida. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay. And I'm like, my association with like Florida hardcore was like this very, you know, like besides like Drag Body and that kind of stuff was like this almost crusty kind of, borderline grindy like reversal of man and Mm -hmm. you know like that kind of stuff it was like chaos where i was like oh okay and then i heard poison the well and i was like wow these guys are so tight these are the like this is the you guys the the word i thought of was like torchbearer like you guys are the ones Mm -hmm. bringing the stuff that i'd heard you know three or four years prior into that modern style it was really really cool to hear thanks man um florida is such a big state it doesn't seem very big but it, 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 
it's definitely separated. Like South Florida was South Florida, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then there was like Central Florida and then there was, you know, the, the Gainesville scene, like hot water music. And it was kind of those three. I, I know some of the metal stuff was coming out of like Tampa, like Central Florida, mm-hmm. Tampa area, but that wasn't really directly connected. It was indirectly connected. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, some of, some of the bands kind of came across one another, but not really like, I don't know anybody from hot water music. Like I've seen them a few times. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But you also got to think Gainesville to South Florida is I think roughly five hours. It's the equivalent of driving. Oh. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's like driving from like Los Angeles to like San Francisco, roughly, you know, give or take. Like um, East coast people, that would be like, that's like Philly to Pittsburgh because you were in a Philly band. You should automatically know people in Pittsburgh bands. Like it doesn't fucking yeah. work. That just, that doesn't work like that. A five hour difference is fucking huge. Very it's funny how that attached. works. Like, certain bands just don't cross each other's hemisphere like a, a while ago i remember seeing something on in- social media either from poison the well or hopes fall but even though poison the well and hopes fall were you know big at the same time and on the same label uh, someone said like oh yeah we never really crossed each other's orbit you just you, you just never know how it's going to play out yeah, yeah. I, I think that was probably it may have been then or them or us um we definitely never really crossed their orbit because i feel like they were like a little bit younger and we just never yeah. toured together and there was just never like crossing uh, crossing of the paths um right and it's like you said it's a generational thing because when i got into hardcore the the godfathers of you know melodic florida hardcore were strong arm and shy halud and those those two two of their records were two of the earliest records yep. i got into and th- this this melodic hardcore charge was be- being led by Mike Shaw, who, who you know, he was our, our friend who sang for this day forward. Yeah, and Mike. he, you know, he would just we would get in his car and he'd be he'd always be like, "Hey, I got this band." And that first Poison the Well record was one of those bands. And we actually saw you early on. You played uh, up at the Stalag Thirteen in West Philly with Twelve Tribes. I know you guys uh, played a lot of shows with them. Yeah, dude, that was. A long time. That was like 1998, I think. Yes. 99, maybe even as far as back as 97. Um, yeah. 98, I think. Yeah, I remember. I think, I don't remember if he played there once or twice. I know one time we played, uh, we were playing, it was Us 12 Tribes, somebody else, I believe. Cave The one I was at was Harvest, Dillinger, yeah. Cave In. That was an epic, epic show. That's that was like, one of, yeah. yeah. Ridiculous lineup. So we opened, and it was 12 Tribes, and it was Harvest, and Caven played, but Caven only played four songs for whatever reason. Right. And they played... Technical difficulties. Something, yeah. There was some sort of shit, yeah. and they played, I think, the first three songs off of Until Your Heart Stops. And then yeah. old school, you know, old school lineup of Dillinger, Skate Plan, like Dimitri singing yep. and Chris playing drums. They played. Um, yeah. I remember it being fucking cold as shit. I remember that place just being... It was just a squatter fucking crusty you know <laughs> yeah house. yeah dude it was, it was a good townhouse basically and i re- i remember dillinger covered raining blood and it was it was it was wild yep. it was a wild show that place was like the wild west yeah. well it was the wild west it was dude. west philly yeah. it is west philly and there is a yeah. my my favorite thing in the world about that venue is like uh you would be outside and legitimately hear stuff and go I'm pretty sure those were gunshots. Yep. And then you look like look what your options. You're like, all right, well, I could walk back inside the venue where there's literally holes punched through the drywall and I can see the next building. 
or I could just stay out here and kind of risk it. And I'm like, fuck it, I'll just stay out here. <laughs> like, funny, <laughs> dude, funny story about that. So that was the second time that we played Stalag 13. The first time we played, it was us. Yeah. It may yeah. have been 12 tribes, but it was also this uh, band called Skit System, which was like a side project of a few of the dudes of At the Gates. So anyways, we play, uh, oh, wow. I, I, 12 tribes plays. And at some point, I think outside, I wasn't there. So this is, you know, secondhand information, but somebody got robbed. And at that point, both bands were like, yo, we need to get the yeah. fuck out of here. Yeah, <laughs> pretty sketch. Yeah, it's a, yeah. That's pretty much, that's, uh, that's, that's part for the course though, with like that area, because it's like, it's at a, the time. Yeah. Yeah. At, oh yeah. Especially holy shit at the time. Right now you drive down there. It's, uh, it's, I think it's a pharmacy now. Oh wow. <laughs> or it, it, yeah. It's something really Cause Keep in mind, like a, a block and a half up, uh, if you keep going up, past 40th is uh where university of pennsylvania and drexel um, universities have their fraternity housing mm-hmm. so like it's like a bunch of ivy league kids like right down the street like wow. not only ivy league kids fraternity ivy league kids so it's yeah. like <laughs> very like uh it's a kind of a you know you would also get that mix of like strange groups of like meathead kids wandering down the street like randomly while you're you know playing a show ah that's just fucking wild <laughs> that was that's like the classic Philly venue, Stalag 13. <laughs> that that and the Kill Time were were legendary. And they were next door to each other. They were literally, yeah. they, they were, yeah. you yeah. know, separated by a foot and a half. Don't remember if we ever played Kill Time. It sounds really familiar. Oh, you have, yeah, because yeah, right. you played, you played the This Day Forward <laughs> yeah. record release. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. That, that yeah. era of my life is a little blurry. I do remember certain venues like <laughs> CB's. I remember Stalag 13. I yeah. remember playing like uh, this venue in Springfield, um, Massachusetts. I can't remember what the name of it is, but I remember playing it a few times at 12 Tribes. There's like key moments in my life during that period of time where I remember certain spots. And, uh, but, but for some reason, the kill time is just, it's, I just can't remember it to save my life. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, that was so long ago. A lot of, there's like very specific stuff I remember and then large periods of time i don't remember it just yeah. it just depends so did you guys do a lot of touring on uh distance makes the heart grow fonder like did you do any like u.s tours or was it just wherever wherever we have a show we're driving there and we're doing it well that period of time was it was a little bit more difficult right because yeah. obviously the internet isn't what it is right now and i remember shows having to be booked through like aol instant messenger of just like hey we got this guy that could set up shows in new york or we got a guy that could set up shows in philly or the mm-hmm. guy that could set up shows outside of boston or virginia beach or whatever so what we would do is we would take uh like vacation time like myself and derek derek miller who mm-hmm. he didn't play on distance he's credited but he joined probably after the first or second little run that we did with that, you know, r- original lineup, Poison Well lineup with like Russ playing guitar, Andrew playing bass, um, mm-hmm. Dwayne on vocals, Ari on vocals, myself and Ryan. We we were both in high school, so we could only do uh, like winter vacation, summer vacations, uh, spring vacation, whatever. But right. during distance, it, we just they would just we would just okay, we can go play some shows, and we would just go up there and we'd wing it and we'd fucking you know, have three booked, but play seven because we jumped on a few because that's just kind of the way it was back then. So there mm-hmm. was a little bit of touring. And, and as a side note, that was where we met 12 tribes it was the very first tour that we ever did. We somehow linked up with them. 
And uh, yeah, it's crazy. Still, I mean, I've still talked to some of those dudes to this day. But yeah, very little touring because it was just hardcore was extremely small and booking shows was wasn't exactly the easiest. Right. Yeah. The, the, there was no internet, really. It was just, it was instant messenger and email. Yep. Those were, you know, those were the main things. Definitely no social media. Yeah. I always remember 12 Tribes because my friend Pat McCormick, who used to book shows, he, they were staying at his house, but I think his parents didn't want anyone in the house. So they were just kind of sitting in the van in front of his house. That's pretty funny. <laughs> and my, my parents were more chill. So I was like, dude, just, just everyone come over here. And my mom was like making them breakfast and everything. It was, it was funny. That's, that's really, that's really fucking hilarious. Cause around that same time we would stay with the Shaws. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, <laughs> cause they were super fucking cool and their parents were super cool. And you know, this is before you'd even attempt to be making any money off of music. So, you know, when yeah. we'd, rent, we'd rent our van to go up there and play those shows, it was out of pocket. Not not a lot, but each guy would have to throw in like 200 bucks, but for like a high school kid, right. 200 bucks is a lot of fucking money. But yeah, yeah we yeah, would yeah. stay with people and the Shaws were, were one people. That's how, you know, I, I you know met the Shaw brothers, met the Dean, met Colin, met all, yeah. all those dudes was, we met through, you know, this day forward and playing shows with them in the area, just fucking staying with them and just, was, I mean, it was a, pretty crazy experience to think about now the shaw house was unlike anything i have ever experienced it was just the mecca for like bucks county hardcore everyone was just always there yeah. i would just drive there and just walk in like it was my <laughs> house which is unheard of yeah. like that's that's wild and I, I that's actually when i met you guys because i was always around mm -hmm. so i was i was just in the house and you, yeah you guys were there a lot and it was yeah it was just a good time yeah man it was really exciting uh it's just a really exciting time and in my life and in, in the bands, you know, pre, I guess, pre blowing up within that world. You know, I, I, uh, someone tagged me yesterday in check poison the well Instagram in a, like a flyer from like 2001 when we played CBGBs and it was, mm -hmm. uh, it was probably like a week before nine 11 happened. And I vividly remember yeah. certain things from that day, like coming in, we played some shows from like whatever Connecticut, Boston, you know, whatever that area coming down. And I remember we had a pothole, our fucking trailer popped off and it was dragging by the chains. I remember, Oof. yeah, dude, I mean, totally fine. <laughs> Nobody got hurt. There was no problems. Yeah. I was like in the back of the van, you know, laying down sleeping. But then, you yeah. know, we go, I remember going into the town and this may not have been this time, but I vividly remember getting food and then seeing the twin towers and then being like, Oh, I'm just going to walk to the, and, you know, from where CB's was to fucking where the towers was, was really fucking far. Yeah. And I was, I started walking and I was like, ah, this is far and we got to play and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I'll just do this some other time. And then, you know, a week later, 9-11 happens. Um, but yeah, that's just, it's weird because it's like little things like that. I'm staying at the Shaw's house and like, I don't remember like fully everything, but I remember bits and pieces that would pop out you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's strange. Like I walk by where CB's was now in the Bowery and it's like John, John Barbados yeah. store now, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you, and when you walk by the financial district and they, they still have the imprints of the, where the buildings were and the memorials. And yeah. I never actually got to see a show at CB's before it went away, which is, which is a regret of mine. And I don't, I don't think I went to New York before the towers went down. So I'll, you know, it's it's good to have those memories. Oh, dude, yeah, absolutely. Like without question, like Poison the Well played yeah. there 
probably two, three, four times. I could remember three off the top of my head, but I feel like there was more. Yeah. Um, dude, it's just, it's just cool. It's just cool to have been a part of that. Um, played with cool bands there. Just, you know, it's like a legendary venue. It's like, Oh yeah. Being able to say, Oh, I played CBGBs or I played nine thirty or like, you know, fucking trying ABC to ABC No Rio or yeah. You just anything yeah. anything fucking cool or like on a bigger scale, if you get you know, if you're playing huge rooms, you get to play like the forum or you get to play yeah. like you know, Madison Square Garden. Like yeah, obviously different in capacity and quality, but in terms of, of like the meeting with music and the type of people that have played those rooms, it's just uh it's like for me, it's always like bucket list stuff. Have you ever played the garden? Haven't, haven't, haven't. I uh, I was supposed to be on a tour that played yeah. the garden, but the the artist that I was working for, he didn't end up he didn't end up getting that leg of the tour. We we eventually uh. got another leg of that tour like a year and a half later, but that the first leg was like supposed to be MSG, the Forum in mm-hmm. LA. Like, there's a few like really cool key places, but yeah, we ended up getting the uh, the second run of that tour, we were still doing arenas, but it wasn't like that legendary sort of, you know, sort of place. Right. Cause the garden, I would be like, Oh man, I got to hear about that. It's, it's the garden. It's awesome. I walk by there all the time. Yeah, dude. Like, yeah, just being able to play the garden or even on the West coast, like the Staples center, that like yeah. the Staples center, oh, yeah. the forum, yeah. like, you know, all the crazy cool shit that's happened there. It's like, you just kind of want to, you know, just, it's just cool to, have done that it's like recording at a studio that a lot of amazing bands have made you know influential records at you're just you know just cool i'm 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 participating in that to a certain degree i love that yeah like when my my friend brendan uh who plays guitar for circus survive mm-hmm. they their first record they recorded with brian mcturnan and i was like listen when you go, ask him questions about Texas is the reason yeah. and find out if he's sitting on any songs we haven't heard. I need it. I need to hear about yeah. it. Like, I, I love that kind of shit. Yeah, man. There's definitely like, especially like hardcore and that whole sort of world. There's definitely like very legendary producers that have done, you know, groundbreaking records within uh, within the community, within the world. And um, yeah, Ed McTurnan is, is definitely one of them. Oh, yeah. So how did the... Cur- how did uh, the current incantation of Poison the Well form moving into opposite of December? We lost the two original singers and Jeff came into the picture. And I think Alan was playing bass at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Andrew, our original bass player, left to go to college. So mm-hmm. Derek was friends with Alan. So that's how we met. We met Alan. Alan was like piercing up in Hope Sound. He was just mm-hmm. piercer at a tattoo spot. and He was friends with Derek. and. He didn't really have, you know, crazy bass skills, but whatever. At the time, yeah. it didn't really matter because we were just young kids and he could get by and, you know, totally fine. With yeah. Ari and Dwayne, the two original singers, we eventually uh, kicked out Dwayne. I don't really remember the mm-hmm. reasons. I think that there was, it was, there was something. There was some sort of something. Yeah. Yeah. And Dwayne was replaced by Jeff because uh, Ari, the original singer, had gone to you know, uh, like local Miami shows and Jeff's original uh, band called Defy played. And Mm -hmm. he was like, oh, that guy's guy's voice is just fucking incredible. So we brought Jeff on. I think we did one run, one little little tour, little mini tour, of course, with 12 Tribes. And Mm -hmm. I remember coming home from that tour and just kind of being like, 
nobody was stoked on Ari. There was very much a uh, sort of dictator vibe going on. Now, you know, huh? that's that's years ago. We're all cool. And there's no problems. But we yeah. just we, we yeah. kicked him out because he was just trying to have too much control and just dictating shit. And that's right. that. That's kind of how that came to the point where, like, yeah, we're just going to have one singer. And that that was essentially the, the sort of the, the core lineup from that point on until about 2004. You know, myself, Jeff, Ryan, and Derek. Right, right. And tell us about some of the writing of Opposite of December, because it's a highly influential record. And, you know, I'm sure people tell you that all the time. And I've talked to plenty of people who who that record has had an impact on. Tell us about Absolutely. some of your influences uh, at the time and just some of the experiences going into writing that. Well, it's interesting because I would definitely have to say contemporary hardcore of that period of time was a massive influence. And I think that the record sort of, you know, communicates that, you know, Derek was heavily into like Converge, Caven, Acme, um, mm-hmm. Coalesce, Botch, like he was really into that. I was really yeah. into bands like, uh, like newer Zayo. Um, you know, local bands like Shilude, Morning Again, you know, so on and so forth, like Turmoil too, Turmoil the Process. Oh yeah, legendary, super, yeah, kick, super yeah. kick-ass record. Um, so that's kind of what our main, like me and Derek's main influences were. Ryan, you know, the sound that that sort of the the sound, the guitar sound of Boys the World, you know, definitely comes from Ryan, and he's influenced yeah. from a whole bunch of other things, like his favorite bands, like Rush. And he's mm-hmm. very much influenced by like, you know, a lot of progressive rock, a lot of jazz fusion, a lot of like just old school punk stuff. Like his shit kind of runs the sort of spectrum of, of music. And then, you know, Jeffrey at the time, I believe was just into just, you know, just straight hardcore. Like I know he was a huge fan of like old Zayo. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, I'm trying to think of like what his CD book was at the time, but. Anyway, so that's kind of what it was. So it was like three dudes that were really into hardcore and then another dude that was into hardcore, but then also brought some different elements into the band that wasn't really, you know, prominent in metal, metalcore, hardcore, whatever you want to fucking call it at the time. Yeah. I think that's what really kind of gave the band its sound. Um, writing was sparse. You know, we would write at my old, you know, my parents' old house. I, we wrote a little bit at Derek's parents old house because you know at the time we're like 17 18 19 years old um we wrote we wrote a little bit at like you know the the local rehearsal spot that was in like i think it was like pompano or you know pompano beach and um Mm -hmm. yeah we just kind of pieced it together you know some of because it's funny because ryan was also playing in that uh that band called we're fear and weapons meet and um it was yeah florida kind of old school hardcore band he quit for a little bit because he saw a little bit more with that than Boys the Well. So, you know, half the material on Opposite is basically, was, you know, basically written with myself, Ryan, and a, and a bit of Derek, obviously. And then the other half, songs mm-hmm. like Nerdy or To Mandate Heaven or Wish for Wings at Work, those songs were basically written with Derek and myself. Ryan may have had, like, you know, thrown some riffs around and Derek, you know, may have kind of held on to him because we always kind of knew in the back of our mind Ryan was going to come back. But yeah. it was really um, separated, like in terms of the writing, because I don't know if you know this, but the the way opposite was recorded was Ryan played the songs, all the guitar on the songs that he re- like recorded on, and Derek played all the song. I'm sorry, he wrote, and then Derek played all the guitar on the songs that he wrote. Ah, uh, I, I had didn't no know that. idea. Yeah. Did 
Yeah. He, yeah. I was going to say, no idea that that was the way that was done. That's all. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And then obviously, you know, Jeff sang on everything. I played drums on everything. And then, um, yeah. And then fucking, uh, Alan played bass on everything. But yeah, that's just kind of how that, that was, that, that, that was done. It just made sense because Ryan wasn't in the band at the time. So he didn't know how to play dirty or to play mandate or, uh, like midair love message was like another one that, that was put together by, you know, me and Derek. And, um, yeah. So it just made sense. He just came in and he just played the the parts to his songs and then he just kind of took off. Yeah, it makes sense. You go in, you do it, and then you f- you can all figure it out later once it's ready, once it's time to tour and play out. Well, yeah, well, also too funny when we were touring, um, I don't remember if this is pre or post recording of Opposite, but we at one point, I think we toured as like a four piece. It was like me, Derek, Alan, and Jeff. Once again, oh. once again with 12 Tribes. So it may have been a little <laughs> bit before or a little bit after uh, opposite was released i think before ryan had already quit the band and i think he just kind of came in but you know to the track but at some point we knew he was going to come back because it just it didn't really seem sustainable for him to be in we're fear and weapons meet it's funny to hear all the influences you listed are like all my fa- still to this day mm-hmm. my favorite hardcore bands and back then you know everything so it's just yeah. interesting to hear that you guys had the same influences and just to hear the different things that different bands do with those same influences well i always kind of look at it like that record is like sort of a how do i say this it was just kind of like an aggregate of all the stuff kind of going on in hardcore at the yeah. moment that we kind of put together like i don't i personally don't think that opposite december is necessarily groundbreaking in terms of what we were doing because you could just listen to Converge, or you could listen to Cave or you can listen to Harvest, or you can listen to Zayo, and you can kind of find those influences a little bit more. You could hear it. Whereas I, yeah. I just kind of look at it like, oh, it's right band, right sound, right look, right time, right place. It mm-hmm. was just like, you know, perfect storm where everything aligned, you know? Like, we don't, we would never in any way claim that, you know, we're some, the, the fathers of like metalcore or, or that, you know, that launching of melodic hardcore. Like, it's been said and it's very flattering, but you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, me, Ryan and Jeff sit around and talk or, you know, Derek's around, we'll talk like we're kind of all on the same page where we're just kind of like, yeah, we were just kind of doing, we were just kind of ripping off bands that we really liked. It just kind of, it just hit a nerve with a certain generation at a certain time when that, yeah. that particular style was starting to, 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 to bubble to the surface. Right. And no, I, I'm with you there. It, and that's what you do when you're young. You yeah. you copy the bands that you like and what comes out what is what comes out. Yeah, exactly. And then you and then you'd like to develop your own voice and your own style. Totally. I mean if you go if you know, listening from opposite to Tropic Rock, it still sounds like us playing the instruments. It still sounds like, you know, how Ryan puts chords together. We've kind of you know, uh we made our own sound. Whether you like it or you don't or whatever. You know, we eventually grew grew up and grew into our shoes and understood what we wanted to do and what direction we wanted to go. And um, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, it's really great because I think that in a lot of ways, we have a, you know, humbly speaking, we have a pretty solid catalog and we're very proud of all every record, whether some people like it or some people don't. Like, we recognize it. Absolutely. It, it was a reflection of us as the collective at that point. And, yeah. um, you know... I'm 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 quite I'm quite proud. I'm proud of opposite all the way to the Tropic Rock, and I think we have a 
we've we've built a nice respectable little legacy for ourselves within hardcore within that world and uh you know we're very very grateful for it um we are very appreciative we also realize it's a, like a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to have been a part of that and uh yeah we're just you know i could i could speak for the entire band where i say you know we're all very like humbled and proud of uh, of of you know being involved absolutely that's awesome as well you should be yeah i mean the the whole catalog just each each record brings its own unique thing it's and a story uh, we're gonna get in oh yeah and we're gonna get into some more of that but um my friend brendan who i mentioned earlier yeah he i remember him posting a thing randomly on it on social media and saying he heard the re- opposite of december before it came out and he said to you guys like hey this is going to be huge and it, the record had a very, very strong reception mm-hmm. with with fans. And did you did you guys have any sense of that coming up to the release? Like, wow, we really have something special here, or was it just we did this and we're putting it out and we're going to see what happens? Um. Well, I mean, in the studio, we were all very excited because of what was coming mm-hmm. together, and obviously, we we're like, this is super cool. But really, really past, you know playing shows where you know we had people show up because prior to opposite of december like nobody really gave a shit about poison the well like (laughs) there was not a huge attendance there wasn't it wasn't it 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 was like yeah like we knew the right people and we were able to get hooked up like we knew john wiley with morning again and he hooked us up with Mm -hmm. your good life and that obviously helped um but nobody really cared it wasn't it wasn't scratching the itch that people wanted in terms of that type of music but mm-hmm. we did opposite we're like this is cool like this I, th- I think that we'd be able to accomplish to be able to draw 200 kids in, in in you know for lucky in fort lauderdale and have them sing along and you know dance and do all the things that people do at hardcore shows yeah to say that we understood that you know 20 some odd years later we'd be talking about the impact that that record has nobody really knew i think derek yeah. eric is derek is a you know, Derek hasn't been in Poison Wall for a very long time, but we're all still friends. Right. We're all on good terms. And we talk. And, but, I, I, you know, looking back now, I think that he was able to sort of see there's something here. He was like, he was like the guy, like, I, at the time, he was more like the the direction guy. He could say, mm-hmm. oh, I see what this is. I see where we can go with this. I see it bubbling up. And he kind of took the the driver's seat. Not in terms of writing, because, you know, it was definitely a very collective effort. We all had our say, mm-hmm. but in terms of, like, the direction with the band and the idea, like, oh, we could actually really fucking do this. Like, we could we could, we could, could do more with this than just our little small additions of, you know, 200 kids and a Club Q in Florida. Like, no, we could do more yeah. with tours. We could play with bigger bands. And then we just, as it came, we sort of seized it and... uh we just moved forward with it as much as we could. Took every opportunity that we we had, you know, and uh, sunk everything into it. Everybody was on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, you know, I could tell it was going to be something special. I remember Trustkill posting up uh, a sample song and just being like, whoa, yeah. whoa what happened here? Okay. And that, w- that record was like the soundtrack for that time. I randomly <laughs> remembered we would... When we were younger, now this is a terribly juvenile thing to do, but mm-hmm. we used to drive around the neighborhood and like egg people's cars, and <laughs> and there was this random apartment where we saw a guy watching TV, and we would we would just 
always egg his apartment yeah. just randomly and like dumb stuff like that. And we would put on opposite of December and then like go on our route and, and terrorize the neighborhood. That was like our, <laughs> our tradition. You know, that's the quintessential shit that like teenagers do, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. hundred yeah. percent. Like there's so many times where we go to like, I actually mentioned this before with Keith when we were talking about something. I was like, you know, we might want to check the statute of limitations on some of this shit because like, <laughs> we're, we're mentioning it. And I'm like, all right, no, that's petty vandalism. We're okay with that. And then I'm like, let's yeah. bring this. No, 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 no. Don't bring that up. Don't bring that up. <laughs> really funny. So how, how quickly did you start to see a change in your shows after it came out? I mean, it was definitely, it wasn't like, from one day we were playing to 50 kids to then playing it to a thousand kids. We definitely had to put hard work in. We definitely had to get in the van and, you know, forfeit certain things, forfeit healthy relationships at home, forfeit going to college, um, forfeit a lot Mm -hmm. of things to, to do it. There was definitely work involved, but we definitely had gotten lucky with writing and releasing opposite, especially coming out on Treskill. I don't know if I think that if it would have came yeah. out on Good Life, it may not have had the same impact because originally it was slated to come mm-hmm. out on Good Life Records. But I forget what it was, yeah. but we 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 kind of figured we had something, and you know, Trustskill showed interest, and we thought that was the the best move at that point for us. Um, Absolutely, and Trust Trustkill was another perfect storm. They just had a run of of incredible bands at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's just the way it worked with with Josh and the band, the bands that he had. It, it worked even prior to this uh, to us. You know, he had what he had Harvest. Um, yeah, Brothers. Eighteen Visions were yep. around for right around that time. Yeah, they were. And, they yeah. were definitely before. Eighteen V was definitely before us. I think until the Inca runs out came out a little bit before, or a little bit after Opposite. Um, yep. Walt Jericho, he signed us, uh, yep. us and them around the same time. So he was definitely there was definitely probably a lead up with him to the release of of Opposite, and then he kept going after that. You know, he signed Bleeding Through. I think he signed Throwdown. Eighteen Visions kind of continued on for a little, little bit. Um, yeah, I think he, had, he obviously he had Hopes Fall too. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he knew he knew how to pick the bands, and that particular type of music was exploding at the time. Absolutely, yeah. And Poison the Whale, I guess you guys were on the road all the time after Opposite of December came out, right? Because I saw you in Pennsylvania all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hellfest, you were just probably constantly on tour. We did everything we could, because the funny thing is Opposite came out in 1999. Yeah, it was 99. Um, 99, and we were, I was still in high school, as was Derek was still in high school. So, really? Yeah, so the Jew- You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that, because... I always assumed everyone was like way older than me and just way more, well, definitely more mature, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. just, I always assumed everyone was like a lot older than me, but I saw that we're, we're the same age. I think I just looked really, really young because I remember being out on tour and bands thinking I was like 15, but I know mm-hmm. I was, I was p- pretty close to the same age as everybody else. Yeah. I mean, for Poison the Well, um, I was during that period of time, I was the second youngest. Derek was, mm. Derek was the youngest. Um, Jeffrey is like a month older than me. And then Ryan is older than me by like two or three years. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, d- like I said, during that period of time, we would, we would go out on tour. We would take weekends off. So me and Derek would forfeit school on Friday, leave on a Thursday, go up, drive up, play a show in Virginia beach, go hit a show, show at CB's, maybe hit a show somewhere in Philly or maybe, uh, you know, go up, hit Worcester, hit, you mm-hmm. know, the middle East and fucking in Boston. 
uh, and then drive home, be like not play a bunch of shows, but like hit two to three shows, um, yeah. and then be back home by Monday, and then we both would be back at school by Tuesday. We did this once a month, almost every month during my senior year of high school and Derek's mm-hmm. senior wow. year of high school. Yeah. And, wow. and oddly enough, my parents are fucking cool with it. So <laughs> that's really awesome. <laughs> that is cool. I, I like that. My parents were cool with stuff like that too. Like I went out on a couple tours with this day forward and mm-hmm. I had shows in their house twice and they, you know, they, some stuff they were really strict about, but that they were like, yeah, you know, I guess they figured, you know, if, if, it, if it's happening here, we can keep an eye on them. Totally. And, and, you know, my parents are really fucking, they're super cool people. My dad, you yeah. know, uh, played bass and toured around and did a bunch of stuff. So he kind of understood it, but they definitely were not stoked on me choosing this life because they knew how difficult it was, uh, yeah. you know, being a musician and, and being successful. I, I was, you know, fortunate enough to take it further than my dad did. And, you know, I'm hoping if I have a son or daughter down the road, if that ever happens and they could take it further than I can, you know, it's like passing the torch sort of. That's um, a really cool way to think about because my mom was like, I, I'm so like my as soon as I said I was in a band, my mom was like, that's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Like she immediately was like dismissive of it. So like uh, I thought when when I hear people tell them like like their story of like, hey, my mom would, you know, help me with this or my father was really into this. It's like, that's so cool to have people that were now my mom was supportive of other things. But for her, punk rock, hardcore, all of that was like she was like, this is a waste of time. Like, the, how are you? Oh, dude. Like, because. Yeah. <laughs> they don't get it. I mean, they still don't, they they understand it a little bit, but they don't fully get it. Like at the mm-hmm. time when I was eighteen, nineteen, like they didn't understand it at all. But they were like, "Okay, well, let him get this out of his system." And you know, I see, I, I see, yeah. I see, I see <laughs> yeah. two. I see both sides of the the coin with my parents. My mom is obviously mothers try to protect, and she saw how hard it was for my father and the pain that he had to go through, and she was shielding me. Whereas I think my dad was like a little skeptical. It's more of like be a man, go out and prove yourself, right? He's like, well, if I couldn't do it, you mm-hmm. can't do it. So that obviously, you know, a little bit of a fire under my ass. And, you know, oh, you yeah. have to, you have to go in, you have to be a man. You have to, you have to, you have to prove like there's a, you know, men are very meritocratic. So it's like, go out there and, and rites of passage. And yep. at some point yep. my dad did accept it when I was like, oh, I'm going to Europe. And, you know, we signed a deal with Atlantic. Like I proved myself and that, and that's totally yes. cool. At the time I didn't get it. But the older that I became, the more I understood of like, okay, yeah, it would have been a little cool if he was a bit more supportive. But at the same time, him being like, well, prove yourself is it's just part of of strengthening yourself as as a as, it's, it's part of it's it's part of the role that the father should provide to the son. You know what I mean? The way yeah. the way I look at it. And like I said, the older I've gotten and the more I've thought about it, and the more experiences that I've had as a man, the more I understand it. Cause it's like, yeah, like if he would have just been like, Oh, this is great. And this is blah, blah, blah. And more supportive. Maybe I wouldn't have taken it as far, you know, but right. Cause like spite can be like the ultimate motivator, especially for me, oh, you know, cause totally. my, my dad, he, he, he's supportive, but he, he does it in a weird way. Like he'll, I don't know, maybe it's in a protective way. He'll be like, Oh, you can't do that. And then I'll be like, well, now I'm going to do it. Now I have yeah. to prove myself. Yeah. I, I think with my dad, he just, he knew that the world was a very hard, cruel place. And that, you know, if I were to survive in it, if I were to be able to survive, especially choosing the road of music, um, he was going to have to, he was going to have to do everything from me being a, uh, you know, a young boy to becoming a, a 
man going on tour, he was going to have to do everything within his power to make sure that he made me as strong as possible. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for his role in my life and what he did. I, it took me a really, really, really long time to understand it because I just, I'd never really understood it. And, and I do think right. that with going on today in society with, you know, men being raised by say like single moms and like not having a strong, positive male role model in their life to sort of guide them. I feel mm-hmm. like we're dealing with a pretty weak world. And, um, I, I look at that and I look at, you know, what my, my father gave me the grit and the strength to persist forward. And, uh, you know, it's only once you could sort of compare it to society that you could say, Oh, fuck, man. I'm glad, I'm glad he did that. It, t- it took me, it took me growing up to understand that because I feel like it, do it always does. Yeah. Cause I look back and I, I used to just look back pissed off all the time or why'd this happen to me but now i'm like oh these these experiences shaped who i am today so for totally. that i'm grateful totally yeah. and and i'm very very grateful for my father because maybe if he wouldn't have done the things that he's he did you know maybe i would have bailed on this away long uh you know a really long time ago but i didn't right because it's just like right. the strength and the, the the grit to be able to persevere and get what you want yeah so opposite of December is out. We're touring. We're moving on up, and now Tear from the Red, yeah, the second album. Yeah. And this was this was a, a leap forward for the band. Some of my favorite songs are on it. The opening track is just is one of my favorites. It's it's classic in my mind. Cool, man. And Thank you. you know it's a it's it's a little more melodic now. Now I lost touch with a lot of hardcore because you know I was young and thick headed at the time, and I when bands a lot of bands were were you know they were heavy and then they're like we're not heavy anymore yeah and I, I i didn't like that like i would get mad but but you guys didn't do that here you didn't you didn't drastically change your sound there's more melody but there's a lot of heaviness too it's just it's just mm-hmm. kind of an, an advancement of the opposite lp in my yeah. mind but tell yeah. us tell us about some of the experiences around that album that stick out in your mind uh, i do remember writing it um i remember derek also too seeing the opportunity because he was a very, very big Deftones fan. And yeah. I, I still believe he is, but he saw, he's like, he was kind of the guy that was seeing like, Hey, like Deftones is a really big band. And, you know, I think around that time they released white pony and yes. that was a very, very big successful record. So yeah. he was like thinking in his, I think he was thinking in his mind, like we could do what we're, we can do what they're doing and, but not really have to alter our sound really at all. Just maybe, take it in a different direction, you know, organic mm-hmm. because he was a big Deftones fan. He started thinking of, of heavy music very differently and him paired yeah. up with Ryan, who is always left of center in a good way when it comes to mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Uh, was a great combination to be able to move forward with the band sound. And, and yeah, like it, it was definitely a little bit more pop influenced, you know, a little bit less mm-hmm. of the, what we commonly f- refer to as riff salad arrangements you know there was definitely a little bit more we were we were, we were finding a little bit more fluidity to the structure and structure the, the structures of the songs and yeah. you know um adopting more of a, like a pop structure but like not really necessarily altering our sound at all just being influenced being influenced more by stuff not hardcore related on still on top of still being influenced by stuff that was hardcore so it was that right. weird merger of both, but it was it was organic. There wasn't some sort of premeditated. We have to change our sound to fit this thing. It was just kind of like, oh well, we're 
doing kind of works for it. Let's just keep doing what we're doing and get better and write better songs and become better musicians and, you know, go out, get in the van, go on tour and just persist forward. Yeah, and it, it's definitely evident on that album for sure. And how how was the reception to that album and just, you know, the tours and everything? Because, you know, I I lost touch with hardcore around that time. I just got really into post-rock and like getting mm-hmm. fucked up all the time. So I wasn't really paying attention to a lot, <laughs> a lot of things. So just how, how, how was it around that time? Um, it was interesting. Um, I don't really feel like the record was well received at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that people were expecting, you know, opposite part two because that's just yeah. what we did. And we, you know, decided to sort of do what we did and say fuck everybody and move forward with with that. And, yeah, uh, I do remember when we turned it into to Trusco. I think Josh was a little I don't want to say let down, but I don't think mm-hmm. he was what he was expecting. And uh. because because of that. Um. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was not received well off the top of the, uh, you know, off the off the top. It wasn't. It was definitely very different than opposite of December. And I think the way that we received that record really influenced how our attitude was moving forward with writing music and writing records. Was just kind of like fuck everybody. We're going to do what we want. And yeah, and ultimately, I think you have to do that because if you if you just think like, oh, we have to do what we think people want us to do or if you're listening to a producer say like do this and and you don't go with your heart you're just you're just ultimately going to end up regretting it forever so you know if you're doing it your way at least you can say we did it our way it's genuine this is it exactly and that's kind of the attitude yeah. we we maintain with it on top of the fact that we were finding success like there for the red yeah. we opened more doors for us it sold more records than opposite yeah it didn't really necessarily have the same sort of impact within hardcore yeah, but I mean, whatever. Like that's not that was never really the intention of opposite. So yeah. it's just kind of like okay, whatever. You know, like let's just keep doing what we're doing. We have an opportunity to actually do this for a living. We saw yeah. we saw a golden opportunity to be ourselves and become a big band without really having to compromise too much because it seemed like every record that we put out became more and more popular. So mm-hmm. whatever we're whatever we were doing as a band obviously was paying off. So were you, did you have to like work another, did any, did the guys have to work another job during that time or, or was there a point where you could, where you were just doing the band and that's all you had to do? No, everybody was still working. I mean, it wasn't until we signed with Atlantic and got like some upfront money and the band mm-hmm. became more of a touring entity that like more of a touring entity where we were making more money because obviously each record was a step in growth, growth in popularity, mm-hmm. growth in musical development growth and in, in sort of you know what we what our company what our band brought in and um we saw the work jobs like myself and jeff we worked at like einstein's bagels <laughs> yeah you know Ryan <laughs> had odds and ends jobs i think Derek had odds and ends jobs we would just do it we would just we had jobs that were cool with us leaving because yeah. also the novelty factor of oh these guys are in bands and they're gonna leave like also too like there were Jeffrey and I working at Einstein's fucking bagels. It's like, it's not exactly yeah. a career builder. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's just one of those things that like, it doesn't really matter if I lost the job. They just so happen to be cool with him and I doing it. So yeah. Did people cool. come in a lot and they're like, Hey, you guys are in poison the well. No, not necessarily. Cause you got to think too, at the same time, like social media didn't exist 
and right and like yeah. the, the internet was still like AOL-ish. So like, yeah, nobody really knew. Plus, too, like hardcore wasn't it wasn't big. It wasn't really big. Yeah. It was like it was still this very niche thing. And you know, may, maybe if like kids from that particular scene, you know, from the punk scene or the hardcore scene came in, yeah, you know, they would recognize us. But we'd know them too, so it wasn't like this sort of like you know, yeah, it wasn't a random thing. It yeah. wasn't like That's celebrity true. fan dynamic. It was that, that, <laughs> that just wasn't the thing at the time at all. So, how did you get the attention of uh, Atlantic Records? I guess based off of uh, Tear from the Red and everything else you've done, huh? Well, there was a few things kind of at play there. So, obviously, the the, the opposite came out, made you know, made some waves. We were very familiar mm-hmm. with that. We did Tear, and then that kind of continued the momentum. It sold a bunch of records. And we linked up with a manager that was, um, we linked up with a manager that was just, he was just a really great businessman. We're still friends with him today. He's, he's this mm-hmm. guy named Bill. He works at Golden Voice, which is like a very big, prim- uh, large promotions company out in California. Like they do like Coachella and, and Stagecoach and, and then all the affiliate, you know, affiliated festivals with Golden Voice. Um, mm-hmm. he was tour, he tour managed Hatebreed for a little bit. He was kind of dipping his toe into the touring world. And uh, our friend uh, Lorenzo from Sworn Enemy, which we had met on tour uh, when we were out with Hatebreed, had linked up with Bill at some point. It was like, hey, you got to check this band Boys Noel out, blah, 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 blah. And he came to a show that we played in Las Vegas, probably around 2001, 2002, where we played in the fucking lobby of a venue. And <laughs> it's because the venue was just massive. It just, you know, once again, it's like, the bands weren't the, the band wasn't that big. It yeah, was like you know, we were drawn anywhere between two and four, two to two to four hundred kids at the time, which was like massive for hardcore because bands weren't really doing that. Like bigger bands did it, but like it wasn't that common. So he came out, saw us, saw opportunity, and obviously, you know, if you work for a massive promotion company in Los Angeles, the hub of music. He's going to have access to people that could get him to where he needs to go if he was trying to sell us to somebody. I think that mixed the fact that, uh, you know, Poison the Well for Truskill was a selling, it was a selling point. So I think Josh was trying to sell Truskill to something, whether another label is a sub-label or a distribution or something along those lines. So between having a manager that, you know, had connections and the band's still growing. The band being able to produce numbers, you know, independently, we sold like 50,000 copies at the time of like tear and mm-hmm. you know, 20 or 30 of opposite, which is unheard of without having a really serious major label behind you. Plus the fact that you have a lot of hype. Plus the fact that Josh is trying to sell or do whatever with trust kill and using us as leverage. Mm-hmm. I think that there was just a lot of hype and a lot of buzz around the band. And the way we kind of linked up with Atlantic was our manager, our old manager Bill at the time, got connected with this guy named Sean DeMont, um, who knew somebody, knew this guy named Bino, who manages Deftones and managed System of Down and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of fans who had a sub label through his management company with Atlantic. And um, they were one of a few labels that we were talking to. Like we were talking to them. We were talking to DreamWorks before DreamWorks folded. Um, 
There was interest from like one or two other companies, but DreamWorks and Atlantic Velvet Hammer were like the two ones that were the most interested. Mm-hmm. And we opted to go with Velvet Hammer Atlantic because Gabino was somebody that we thought understood the band because he had a band like System of a Down, which is very left of center. We're very mm-hmm. different, but we're also left of center. So we thought yeah. he, could un- he would understand us a little bit more and understand what we wanted to do and where we wanted to go. And he was just one of those guys that wanted to win. you know. And there's something to be said about somebody that will throw everything at something and really invest their entirety into it yeah. by sheer ego. So we thought it was, it was a positive, a net positive to have that guy on our side, on top of having a really great manager, on top of having the hype, on top of having all these sort of these things put into place, um, getting hooked up with Atlantic, you know, via Velvet Hammer to us seemed like it made the most sense because we could either have gone to a major label or we could have gone to like an Epitaph or Vagrant, which I didn't feel like at the time our band really fit in with. We weren't like a Vagrant band. We weren't an Epitaph. Yeah. We weren't an Epitaph. Yeah. We were just kind of creating our own. We were trying to forge our own path and create our own thing and that just seemed like it was like the best thing to do for us it was it was the move that made sense at the time if we were going to try to become a big band uh on our own terms and i I, if you you have the opportunity to do a major label record i feel like you got to do it like you got to try i mean why not yeah totally totally and like we never really preached anything against that so we weren't you know the the whole sort of sellout thing we didn't. We just. Yeah. We didn't feel like it applied to us because it's like, well, we never. Selling out to me is something that you do when it, you go against your principles. We were never yeah. against it, so it's just like, it didn't really, you know, it didn't really bother us at all. Obviously, I, at, at that point, I'm sure some people called sellouts, but it's just like, yeah, well, to whose standard, you know? I think that became people. much less of a thing by by the, the mid 2000s, you know. Yeah. Uh, or, or just maybe it just I'm older and I don't care, but I, I don't really think that that was m- as much of a thing. Like, oh, major label, no, no I, we're not going to listen to it. I don't really remember people fucking crying out that much. It wasn't an overwhelming amount of hate. Yeah. But at the same time, I do remember some people being kind of up in arms about it. But it's like at the same time, it's just like, yeah, cool. You could sort of ban then, you know, you get a major label offer, you could turn it down. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone's always going to bitch. So it just doesn't matter. Totally don't give a shit. Yeah, we didn't give a fuck at all. Yeah. We were just kind of like, whatever. It's just like, we're, yeah. we're going to live our lives to, you know, we're going to live our lives based upon other people's standards. Like, no, fuck. Yeah. So. No, you can't. And You Come Before You is, is one of my favorite records. I, I think it was really the culmination of your evolving sound. And there's, there's a lot of different stuff going on. It's just, you know, it's just a really good LP. How, how was record going out to Sweden to record that? That must have been a trip. Dude, it was a, it was a really great experience, man, because at that point you had the machine behind you. They gave us a bunch yeah. of money to record, like a lot of fucking money to record. They gave us yeah. a living advance, which obviously at that point we set it up in such a way that we could live, right? I mean, we didn't really mm-hmm. have expenses. So, you know, we set it up so we didn't have to work bullshit jobs. So we would be, um, in the position to be able to go tour and pay our bills and, and, and go record and pay our bills. Um, but the, the experience of the Yuka before you was really great, man. We, so it, that, that record was done in two different sessions. We, mm-hmm. we, you know, we wrote it all over the course of, you know, the time of releasing Tara from the Red to the time that we recorded Yuka before, mm-hmm. you know, just constantly writing and putting stuff together, even up until like the, the 11th hour. 
like, you know, we put the record together and we got the, the living advance to sort of take care of our, our, you know, our needs. And, you know, we got a ton of money to, to make a record. So we kind of talked about the direction we want to go and who we wanted to do it with. And, you know, obviously around that time, Refuse Shape of Punk to Come was, was a, was a big, it was a big influencing factor and we, we liked the production and, you know, we got in contact with them and they, they liked what we were doing and like, they liked our attitude. So we booked some time at sound city in Los Angeles, drove out there, did all like the base, all the pre-production and all the basic tracking was done at sound city. At that point, you know, those dudes flew back to Sweden. We flew to, or we, sorry, we drove back to the, uh, to Florida because we, at the time we were all living in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale, was Palm Beach area. And uh, I think we had a few days off and then we jumped on a flight and flew to to Mio, Sweden and finished up the record. Uh, Derek and Ryan did a bunch of overdubs. There was a bunch of percussion stuff done. Uh, Jeff did all the vocals out in Sweden and then it was mixed and mastered. And uh, it was a really great experience, man. That, yeah, it was a really yeah. great experience to, to do it. You know, we, um, being able to go over there and uh, work with those dudes because they kicked their ass. Like, Prior to yeah. that, we hadn't had a really a producer telling us, "Hey, you're you're rushy, or you're behind, or you're not playing with feel, or you need to learn this or that." Like they definitely whipped us in uh, the band into shape. You know, especially me as being the drummer, they definitely yeah. whipped us into shape in terms of of getting our act together and becoming like a real band. And, That's uh, good. Yeah, I, I, I would like that because usually you just go in and the, the person's like, yeah, go ahead, record. All right. That sounds good. Like, you know, to have some real direction, that must that must be fantastic. Totally, totally. And it definitely, yeah. uh, at least, you know, speaking for myself, it definitely set me on a on a on a on a course of growing more as a player, as a drummer. And, um, you know, it's like having an influential figure or figures with those dudes having influential figures that, you know, they're, 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 they're teaching you shit and yeah. they're not holding back any punches. They're not telling you it's going to be okay. And then fixing it in your, you know, in, in their DAW, their, you know, recording program They're mm-hmm. they're, they're saying, no, you got to play that better. You got to play that better. Yeah. You know, to all, yeah. of us, all of us, all our, all our asses got kicked to different degrees. Yeah. So to me, that, that's what I look at you come for you for me. It's like, yeah, musically it's cool. And I appreciate those songs. And obviously those, Especially to this day when we play live, you know, kids still, there's, there's some, you know, I, I say I, our classics are on that record. Some of our classics yeah. on that record. But um, I look at that as like, that to me is record number one for Poison the Well, because that's the record that we grew up. We went from being like a baby band to being an adult band. And yeah. And you can hear it. That, that definitely comes through for sure on that one. Yeah. And how how were the tours around that time? Because uh, we have major label backing now. Did you play like any random really big gigs? Yeah, I mean, from that, so that was like the launch, you know, on becoming, around that time, getting our asses kicked in the studio. Then it was like, then hitting the live road and then having to take it up a few notches, right? Yeah. You know, we, we did Warp Tour 2003. We toured with, with the Deftones. We did you know, big day out in Australia. We did, you know, a big run with Thursday when they were ginormous. We did a big run with Thrice when they were ginormous. Like, yeah, we did a Canadian tour with AFI. Like, we weren't playing small rooms. We were playing very, very large rooms. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was really stressful around that period of time because we needed to, to step it up. It's like 
baptism by fire. You know, it's like, you got to do it and you got to fucking do it quick. And, um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's, that was that run. Plus two run that time. A, a lot of dudes were really unhappy. That was kind of like yeah. the beginning of the end of like the lineup with me, Derek, Ryan, and Jeff. Derek was very, very unhappy. He musically wasn't, as far as I understood, he wasn't being fulfilled musically. Mm-hmm. He wanted to go in a very different direction. And, you know, he had his personal reasons behind that. And, um, yeah, you could tell on tour, he just wasn't, he wasn't very happy. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. At the end of touring on that record, he, he quit. We were, you know, we were making plans on record number four and we had a, a, a completely different, uh, record. Uh, there was a record in between you, you come before you inversions that Derek had written completely on his own, essentially. Wow. And was dictating to everybody what to play. And it just didn't sound like poison. Well, and, uh, uh. What did it sound like? I'm curious. I think there's some songs that are floating around on the internet. You know, really jangly guitars. The drums are pretty, you know, pretty static. There wasn't a lot of stuff. Yeah. It was just, it was one guy at the time taking control of things. I'm assuming yeah. to make himself happy and to fulfill that itch. And yeah. It wasn't working because Poison the Well was not built on one person. It was built on, at that time, for four people. Right. You know, so... um. Yeah, he quit. Our bass player at the time, Jeff Bergman, who played up a curl, curl up and die, he wasn't happy. He quit, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of kind of like the 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 core four becoming the core three. You know, my yeah. myself, Derek. I'm sorry, myself, Jeffrey, and Ryan. And then that's where kind of versions pick up. Like we did that record with Derek. We scrapped it. Um, we didn't actually. I'm sorry. We didn't fully do the record. We did. We wrote it, and then did pre production. And, uh, okay. and then, yeah, then it got scrapped and then the, the Swedes had to go back to Sweden and it was just a lot of money wasted, a lot of time, just, you know, just whatever. But, you know, Derek quit and, uh, me and Jeffrey and Ryan figured out, Hey, we want to continue to do this. We have a great appreciation for it. We love it. And we still think we can do it because, you know, Jeff is a big part of the band. I was a big part of the band and Ryan was a very big part of the band. Yeah. So, you know, that's where I look at it like, the third version of the band started. Like the first version was like, you know, Ari, Dwayne, uh, you know, myself, Ryan, Andrew, and then Russ, you know, that was the distance era. And then from opposite tear and you come before you, that was the era of like me, Derek, Ryan, Jeffrey. And then mm-hmm. was the beginning of the era of, you know, the three of us of, you know, me, right. me, me, Jeffrey, and then Ryan and figuring out like kind of what we want to do. Obviously, you know, we brought other people to play and we brought another guitar to, guitar player to play in, play in the band and write. And we brought in, and, you know, several bass players and, you know, trying to figure out what worked chemistry wise and what gelled the most. But it wasn't until we did, you know, moving ahead a little bit. It wasn't until we started working with our, our current bass player, Brad Grace, that he kind of filled in the fourth role of the band. So, and there was four years between You Come Before You and Versions, right? Yeah, yeah. So was the band together that whole time? Were you touring that whole time? So like a year and a half, two years was the touring of You Come Before You. Yeah. Probably like a year, year and a half of it being released was 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 the touring. And then, you know, obviously we attempted to do another record that went south. We scrapped it. We regrouped as the core three of us, and then we attempted to find what the next sound was for what would have been versions. We're like, okay, well, what is this? What is this record supposed to be? 
where where is it going to go? What's the sound that we want? Like, how is it going to represent what we're doing? So it just took a lot of time to get the ball rolling and to figure it out. And also, too, we're dealing with, you know, Ryan, his, his father passed away. Um, oh. We were also dealing with label issues because Atlantic thought that we were going to go more of a pop road. You know, okay, you know, we turned in you before you. We let them do what they wanted to do. And now they got to deliver the goods. You know, they were okay with Yuka before you because we were like, hey, we're going to sell, you know, run 100,000 records. This is part of yeah. the band. Okay, we're on board with that. On, they're, they're on board with that. Well, obviously now for versions, it's time to deliver. And uh, that was not necessarily where we were as a band. We were, we were very injured, I guess, between, you know, they're quitting, Ryan's dad dying, um, trying to figure out what our identity was outside of not having Derek there. And, you know, it takes, it takes time, man. You got to write a lot of songs before you start figuring out, okay, this is it. We're starting to, we're starting to hit stuff. That's cool. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's like you're starting over again, almost, and you're, you're figuring out who you are and there's a lot of, it's a very interesting album. You're starting to experiment more with like the almost cave-in sound it's like the rock and roll meets hardcore and then there's just a lot of interesting instrumentation in there the slide guitar and all that stuff i read an old interview with ryan where he said he's really into surf rock and that type of stuff so what kind of bands were you into at the time what what was everyone bringing to the table oh man music for me i'm trying to remember what i was into at that time i think i was definitely making the transition from from you know heavy stuff to just a little bit, maybe a little bit more like electronic, a little bit more indie, a little bit more rock. That was kind of where I, I started going, I want to say backwards, but I started re falling back in love with the records that influenced me to play drums, like Nirvana, Hero, yeah. or Soundgarden, Super Unknown. You know, discovering, really discovering like the, the full catalog of like the Beatles and having a great appreciation for where they started and where they ended. It was just more of an expansion. So instead of it just being like, oh, I like punk and I like hardcore and, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It was like, for me, it was, uh, it was just growing up as a, as a, as a, as a musician, like discovering the full Led Zeppelin catalog, not like the, the hits and like, like I said, the fields and then, you know, understanding what was kind of going on in rock at the time, like not like Nickelback or like any of that sort of stuff, but like, more like i guess you'd say more like classic rockish so that that's where i was at the time to me when i when i think of versions it it makes me think of like a really cool eclectic beatles record you know not saying that the songs are as popular or influential or as good but that was kind of like for me that was like the, the point of genesis so, oh, and you moved to uh, Ferret Records for that one. And Ferret has always been a solid label, a lot of good bands. Yeah. How, was it, how was it working with them? It was great. Yeah, I mean, Carl was really great to work with. I mean, we'd known him for years. We'd known everybody, you know, in the Ferret family. And, uh, you know, when we, 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 when we parted ways with Trustkill, it was, um, we weren't on good terms, which is right. that way. Yeah. And uh, moving to Ferret, you know, we kind of wanted to go back to a place that we had more control and a place that was going to be excited to release a record. They were Understandably, gonna, yes. Yeah, they were going to let us be uh, they were going to let us be us. 
Yeah. And, uh, we definitely got that with Fair. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, versions was put out on Fair. Trop- the Tropic Rot was put out on Fair. And then we put out, you know, a series of seven inches on there that, of B sides from the version sessions. Mm-hmm. And we've really felt at the end of the day that, you know, that Fair really did, did good by us. And that, you know, I don't have anything negative to say about the experience. Uh, aside, well, the only thing is that, you know, obviously Ferret folded. And yeah. Being able to get a hold of accounting to see where we stand with those records has been fucking near to impossible. Yeah. That was going to be a question for me. You know, we know, we, we know you and many other bands had difficulties with Trustkill. And I'm not going to ask you to rehash all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, do you have any difficulties today still with your back catalog or, or did we move it over and like everything is as taken care of as it can be? Well, yeah, without divulging too many details of trust guilt, essentially at the yeah. end of the day, um, we came to an agreement to where those masters reverted back to us and all the rights were reverted back to us. So that's great. Our, our company owns, you know, our band, our company owns the opposite of December and tear from the red. And, you know, we own, you know, the Botchla video. We also own Distance Makes the Heart Grow Fonder, even though that's a lesser wanted, desired record. It's still part of <laughs> history. So yeah. at least we own those two full lengths in that EP. So we have full control over what we want to do, um, which is great. We, we, we came to some sort of agreement with Josh before Trust Kill folded. Um, with You Come Before You versions of Tropic Rock, not so much, you know, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. They both of them got you know, moved over to a company called Rhino and, um, you know, they'll license us the records, but we don't really get to do what we want, uh, in such a way with those records. If that makes any sense. It does. Yeah, no, yeah. And Tropic Rod, that was your last LP. And that, yeah. that's, uh, that's one of my favorites. Me it's too. like, uh, you know, I hear a lot of cave-in influence. There's like spacey rock and just the a great hardcore slash rock combination. It's mm-hmm. uh, how was uh, how was recording that? Like, give me give me some stories around that one. Uh, so recording Tropic Rock was interesting because <clears throat> we wrote that record probably over the course of like two to three months, maybe four. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the time period. Uh, I was living in Miami at the time, so it was probably around 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we were, we wrote it in a condemned old, uh, old bar up in West Palm Beach that our bass player, Brad, had access to. Nice. And, and, uh, originally we were slated to do the record with Jay Robbins of Jawbox. Yeah. Very last minute he had to pull out because he was having some issues, health issues with his son. Mm-hmm. And you know we were good to go. We had the songs, we had everything booked. We were we needed to get this record done, and we needed to get it done ASAP. And uh, we were able to. Uh, we spoke to a few people, but at the end of the day, it turned out Steve Evitz was was the guy. Steve had some time to be able to do the record, and uh, his budget or our budget worked with his you know with his needs. And uh, yeah, man, we just uh, we booked it out. We were all living in you know Fort Lauderdale, Miami at the time mm-hmm. and uh yeah we fucking got in our van and drove out to california and tracked drums up in calabasas and then went down to steve's studio in garden grove and tracked everything else i'd like to say that it was really you know crazy but it really wasn't the most crazy thing yeah we changed producers at the very last moment right right and then the band went on hiatus right after that right we just decided we're taking a break sort of 
so we put out the record and we thought that, you know, we could regain some momentum. And at the end of the day, uh, I don't think what we were doing was driving what, what was going on uh, popular in, you know, music at the time that was popular. Plus do the, the, mm-hmm. the, the whole industry was going through a, a rapid shift, paradigm shift. How we consume music was different. It was, you know, pre streaming. So people will, were still down music, yada, yada, yada. And we did yeah. get the right tours to be able to promote the record. And, you know, it was oversaturation, right? Like basic law of economics, you know, yeah. demand. And we were just oversupplying and oversupplying and oversupplying. And the attendance at shows wasn't good. We were, we were just felt like we were beating a dead horse. It felt like we needed to put it down for a little bit because we had just been, you know, not getting back what we were putting into it. That, yeah, that's when we decided to, to sort of, put things on hold gotcha so when did you end up moving out to california not too long after the band went on hiatus um yeah i was living in florida the band went you know band obviously went on hiatus Um, yeah i just florida didn't really have anything for me anymore there wasn't really anything there that i that that was holding me there and i felt like if i was going to continue to play with people and pursue music that um that I was going to have to either go to New York, Nashville, or California. And I preferred California because of the weather. And I knew a lot of people out here. So it just logically, it made, it made sense. Yes. And you met our friend Vadim Taver out there, who's now uh, been touring and, and filling in on second guitar yep. uh, for the band. How, how, is, how is it with Vadim? Do you have any dirt on him you can give us? And he, he kind of told us how he ended up in the band and how you guys are friends. Yeah. How you guys are friends. Uh, no, no dirt really. It's just uh, the first few weeks I was living in California, I went to see Kevin and Coalesce at Chain Reaction with a, with a buddy of mine. And Vadim was there and we reconnected because obviously I'd known him from this day forward and the Shaw House and just years of touring and so on and so forth. So yeah, with Vadim, man, uh, I just reconnected with him and uh, him and I kind of started to get like a little musical project going, but it never really got off the ground. Yeah. And then um, we just, we, we remained friends. And when it came time to um, do the reunion stuff, you know, kind of getting back together 2015, 16, I suggested him, but it didn't really work out. And then we yeah. booked another round of shows where we played like, uh, we played like Gramercy in New York, played Toronto, and uh, we did like a festival in, in Quebec. And then we played some West Coast shows. shows. Uh, Vadim, you know, we, we thought he was the kind of, we wanted to try him out. And uh, yeah. ever since then, he's been the guy because he just his personality meshes in really great. He's good with the you know dy- dy- the dynamic, and you know uh, he's just he's good with the position in the band, and you know he's just like yeah, I want to do this, and you know he's good with being a hired guy. So it just works. It's beneficial for both of us because I know he's he's super busy and you know, he's a relationship and teaches chess and tutors yeah he was working for nasa at one point he he's the best he's he's smart and he's a he's a pro he's oh, just he's just totally. an all-around great person totally 100 man nothing but good things to say about vadim he's gonna teach my daughter so i'm gonna have a video conference with him on friday mm-hmm. um with him and my family and we're gonna do he's gonna teach chess to my girls it's awesome oh nice <laughs> i remember when vadim was gonna be playing those initial shows with poison the well just picking it because I'm curious about like the, the process and the mechanics. I'm like, how do you learn the songs? Do you, do you figure them out? Do they, do they show you like, you know, and it, I'm just fascinated by that whole process because Vadim and I talked about this on the show. Like we have this recurring dream where, you know, we have to play a gig 
Yeah. And they're like, all right, get out there and play the gig now. Like, and, but we don't know how to play the song. So it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, you know, he kind of walked through all the, the undertaking of learning the songs and just drilling them until he had them down. Yeah. The songs are really deceptive, man. They're really deceptive. They're, uh, they're challenging because it's like what you think is being played is probably not being played because Ryan's a master of coming up with weird course, weird, uh, weird chords and, you know, weird voicings so you think it's one thing and he's like nope 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 and then you know plays a chord for you and you're like oh shit i don't even know what the fuck that is you know but that's one of the reasons exactly to come in because he's he has enough he has enough musical knowledge where ryan can say stuff to him and he knows how to play the stuff and you know personality wise he fits in and you know that that whole thing that whole dynamic yeah, and I I listen to a lot of the records again, and there there's a lot when you listen to them now with a you know older with a fresh ear. There's a lot of there's a lot more going on than you realize, especially on you come before you. Like the guitar would go here and here, and then I'd always be like, okay, it's going to go here, and it would just go in the complete opposite direction. And I was like, whoa, like yeah. you know, there's a there's a lot of nuance. Yeah, man, that's that's you know that's Ryan and Derek. Um, yeah. That's just yeah, kind of how those dudes uh, rolled when they were you know putting together uh, all the guitar stuff. I mean, you know, they were they were great. They were a great combo, and you know, even now with Ryan, you know, he's he's great too. So, and how did the band? How did we decide we're going to play some shows again? Was it just enough time, and everyone's like, "Hey, let's do it"? It was definitely enough time had gone by, and there was just we were start we were getting just more and more offers because once again, supply and demand. We weren't flying, and then there was a demand building. And, um, you know, the resurgence of all that era of uh, that music becoming popular again. um, Dude, it's been really amazing, man. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I think right now, Poison Wall is probably the biggest we've ever been. And, uh, you know, it's... um, It was just a want to actually be able to play together as a band. Mm -hmm. You know, because we we didn't stop touring and playing with one another because we hated each other or we didn't think that there was musical chemistry. We were just burnt out. Yeah, years and years and years of trying to push something that fundamentally needed to be put down for a little bit. And um, that was that was like the biggest thing, man. It was there was always the want to play, but like at what point? Like we all kind of needed to walk away and see what our identity was outside of Poison the Well. Yeah, and I feel like the the field is kind of settled. Like back in two thousand nine ish, or you know, like we were talking about before when Tropic Rock came out. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the the playing field changed. That everyone's downloading music. I think everyone was maybe at an age where they don't know what they are or what they're listening to. And eventually, eventually, you know, now I feel like it's more stabilized. Like yes, we have streaming, but bands tour a lot. People are older. People are buying merch. And for me, I don't have this stupid like oh, I don't listen to this or I don't listen to that. Or I'm just like, I like what I like. And I don't have to be just this or just that. I can like hardcore. I can like post-rock. I can like uh, hip-hop. I can like whatever I want. And I'm going to go see it. And I'm going to buy merch because I can afford it now. Exactly. Yeah, man. It was just a a weird time. And yeah, I do feel like our audience has definitely grown up. They're definitely more accepting of the band's entire catalog. Whereas before... You know, there was people that are like only into opposite or only into opposite and tear. And some mm-hmm. people like you go before you, then just some people that like like versions, but they don't have any affiliation with like hardcore. They just they're just I guess just outside of that world. 
And yeah. nobody really, I don't really feel like anybody grasped Tropic Rock too much. Whereas I feel like mm-hmm. the records have had time to grow on people and become their own sort of entities on their own. And yeah. If anyone listening to this has not heard Tropic Rot, jump on Spotify or wherever you listen to music and do it. It's 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 a really good LP. Yeah, man, that's my favorite record. Oh my, my yeah, original record. Like I'm 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 glad that that was a record that we left off on. Like I feel like it was a very good note to leave. And you know, yeah. on the road, we choose to do new music. Then we'll we'll pick up, and it'll be poison the well of you know twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two or whatever. But you know, if we decide to just say, hey, our catalog is two EPs and five LPs, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm 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 very happy with Tropic Rot being the last um, record in our band's catalog slash legacy. Yeah, absolutely. As well, you should be. Who knows? Maybe it'll grow like exponentially in time. So when you're playing in like 2030, you know, the people will be beating down the doors demanding to hear the whole record live. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about some of the other stuff you've done. You, you've you done a lot of session work and t- touring with different bands. You've yeah. played with Danny Harrison. How did how did that get, get arranged? So uh, I met Danny through playing with a... Uh, electronic pop artist out of LA called the black Delta. Mm-hmm. I met him through a guy that, uh, was a big poison the wall fan. And, um, just, you know, times, times made sense and he needed a drummer and it was something completely different. I went from poison the well to moving to California and attempting to get something go, you know, going with Vadim. Mm-hmm. That didn't that didn't happen. And then, you know, it was like, I wanted to branch out from like, hardcore and punk and yeah. it made sense to sort of go in that world and uh he was super cool and it was a great experience and i met a lot of people uh and one of those people was danny he was a yeah he's a very big uh, a very big fan of big black delta and uh yeah i was rounding an end of a tour with sense of spell because i was you know i was hired by them to, you know, to play mm-hmm. whatever and uh i got hit him he was releasing a solo record and wanted me to be a part of it like the touring part of it so yeah it's it's playing with him he's a great dude he's super he's a super super awesome guy he's super fun his intention for music is very pure and the band has great chemistry and everybody in the band is really awesome and it's uh musically speaking it's really fun and i got to do a bunch of stuff with him that you know i haven't been able to do before so um whenever he wants to do something he'll give me a call and until then, you know, I got other, I got other irons in the fire. So, oh yes, many. It looks like. Did you say, ever show? Did you ever show Danny Poison the Well? Like, yo, check this out. No, nah, not really, man. I didn't really talk about that. <laughs> he, I mean, he. I remember. Yeah. I think he thinks like Poison Well is like a metal band, but like, yeah, that it's not really his thing. So yeah, we don't really talk about that. You know, there's other yeah. things yeah. to talk about, and you know. He, it's funny. He people know me as being in Poison the Well, but he associates me being in like Big Black Delta, and mm-hmm. like as little to no like idea of Poison the Well. He kind of gets it, but it's mm-hmm. not his world or his taste. So, gotcha. And uh, oh, so you worked with Greg Puchado too on his solo record? Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, I've known Greg for a very long time. We're buds, and uh, I was out on tour with Danny over. The summer we were uh, supporting uh, Electric Light Orchestra. Mm-hmm. I came home, and not too long after, I think I was home for about three weeks to a month. 
he hit me up and he was like, Hey, would you be interested in doing this? You know, I have a, have a bunch of songs and I think that your style of playing will sort of, you know, will fit with this. So he just started sending me songs and I was going to my studio and demoing stuff. And at the end, uh, I ended up tracking nine songs on the record. I think, think so if I remember correctly, there's 15 songs. I played drums on nine. Uh, ben Crawler from Converge played on one, and then Chris Penny, the original drummer for Dillinger, played on another. And then three mm-hmm. songs are electronic, so Greg programmed. Um, Greg, pro- pro- you know, did all the programming, and uh, it's cool, man. Yeah, I mean, like it, it's uh, it's a little all over the place, but that's not necessarily like a bad thing. It's like all over the place in the sense of it's telling a story. He's telling his story, story musically, and the things that cool. he's into because he's into everything from like dark electronic music to like crazy heavy music to like very nineties influenced kind of like grunge stuff. Mm-hmm. So it just, it, it's, it spans the gamut of what he's into. And, you know, I always look at records when it comes from people that I respect. It's, it's storytelling. It's not like, it's not commerce. It's art and story. So. Um, exactly. And the, the way you describe the record is exactly how I imagine Greg's record would sound like industrial slash noisy slash metallic, you know, grungy, like all that stuff. It runs. Yeah. It completely runs all the, it runs all of that. Cause that's what he's into. And he wants, if he's going to release a solo record, he wants it to be as, as far as I interpret it. Yeah. It has to represent who he is. Like, you know, he has his long ass career. Dillinger forever. You know? Yeah fucking what one two three four or five records with them mm-hmm. been doing black queen for a while which is two records um he's been working with jerry cantrell so it's like you know and killer be killed as well so it's just like he's it's gonna have it's his solo record's gonna be a little bit of that all wrapped up especially if it's you know if ben plays drums on a song chris plays drums on a song and then i play drums on the rest and there's some programming um it's gonna be cool man First single that he put out was with Chris playing drums, and um, it was awesome. And I believe the next song he's going to be releasing sometime soon, maybe a little bit before, a little bit after this, is either going to have me or Ben. I think it's going to have me, because I was texting with him, and the two songs he was thinking as like the next single were both songs that I had played drums on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, knowing Greg, he could completely change his mind and go a different direction. Yeah. So yeah, more likely than not, it'll be you know one of the nine songs that I played drums on. And I think that he's setting up like a late summer release for this record. Mm-hmm. So I believe he's every month or so he's going to be kind of releasing songs to sort of you know keep everybody's do, do a nice build up, like a nice campaign to build up. Um, yeah, that, well, I'm looking forward to that. That's that's going to be good. It's cool, man. It's cool. If I have a few songs that I play drums that you know he sent me and. Uh, you know, either completely mixed or partially mixed, and they all sound killer. Um, he did a great job. You know, he played, he sang, played guitar, played uh, bass, and you know, programmed some shit. And uh, I believe Steve Evans is mixing it, so it's gonna, you know, it's gonna sound rad. So you know, he's really, uh, he is really attempting to put his best foot forward. You know, especially too, if it's like your personal names attached to it. Yeah, it has to be a home run right out the gate, and I and I believe what he's going to do is, you know, it's definitely going to, the people that are fans of Black Queen, you know, Killer Be Killed, Dylan Escape Plan, I think they're going to really like, I think they're really going to like it. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. So a question for you. I mean, you probably didn't imagine that your life would end up like this, you know, just being a, a professional percussionist and touring with all these bands and, and doing everything that you have and, and having the legacy that you have. Like, did you have anything else in mind? Like, this is where my life is going to go before all this stuff happened? Not really, man. I mean, initially, I just wanted to play drums in the band and be a, be a guy in a band. I didn't think yeah. it would be a situation in which the industry would completely change and I would go from being in a band to then being a hired musician to then go back into being a band and being a hired musician. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like right now it's like, I'm a member of a band that has a cool legacy and can draw kids. And at any point we could say, Hey, we're going to play some shows and they'll probably sell out. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. at the same time, I can get a call from Danny, or I can get a call from Census Fail, or I can get a call from Greg, or fucking whoever else. I mean, there's, there's, I've gotten hit up by people you wouldn't imagine that, you know, to do stuff, either go jam or go record or do whatever. Can um, you give us some names? Um, well, the one person I do want to mention, I can't because I had to sign an NDA. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but I, I, I will say that he was definitely a voice of the 80s and uh-huh. definitely a, 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 a legendary figure when it comes to like 80s power, not power metal, but like power rock. Um, yeah. We ended up touring. He, he had gotten my information through. Uh, this dude named Noah, Noah Harmon who plays guitar in Danny's band and uh, thought my style would be really great. And, um, you know, we, we jammed and it was cool, but he didn't really, he didn't end up touring. He didn't end up doing anything. He just, I think he wanted to get in the room and play and maybe, maybe at the end of the day, he just, the road life wasn't for him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, like a, a legend. I got to jam with a legend and play, you know, one or two songs that are pretty fucking cool. That's awesome. And I'm I'm just fascinated by everyone's path in life. Like the, the the most important thing in the world to me was being in a band and just I just wanted to get good enough at an instrument to be in a band and you know, I was and it, I, I don't know, there, there usually wasn't the right fit or it wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing and then I just, you know, I haven't played in a band in a while, but mm-hmm. but we're doing this thing now and that's cool and I I get to reconnect with people I haven't spoken to in decades and I get to talk to cool musicians who I'm into. So it's just, you know, you just never know, you just never know where life is going to take you. And that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I'm definitely very proud and stoked of what I've done so far. And, you know, I don't feel like my journey's over at all. I do feel like I have a lot more to go in terms of a player. Yeah. I feel like this is only the beginning, like only in the last three years have i really started doing all the things i want to do and i'm just mm-hmm. always excited about what's going to come up next because you just never know yeah man and just being open to it and um this is what i do for a living and yeah uh, you know i work with people i have my own band you know with three good friends and i work with you know bands and artists and shit like that and uh that's what i'm going to continue to do and i'm going to try to build some sort of legacy for myself and you know a solid structure to be able to you know, make money and do what I love doing. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's my plan right now. I'm literally bouncing back and forth between Danny, Poison the Well and Greg. Um, mm-hmm. I played on Greg's record. That's going to come out sometime 2020. Um, you know, Poison the Well, we had a few festivals slated. I don't know what's happening with them 
you know, considering what's going on with COVID-19. But whether it happens in 2020 or 2021, you know, we're slated to play Psycho Vegas. We're slated to play Furnace Fest. Um, you know, that's going to happen in some capacity or another. Maybe not this year, maybe next year, maybe this year. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, whenever, you know, whenever Danny hits me up and he wants to do something, because he's a pretty busy guy who scores movies and TV shows. And, you know, obviously he has to sort of balance his father's legacy as well. And, you know, he's a really yeah. good guy. So every, you know, every six months to a year, I'll hear from him and he'll be like, hey, you know, do you want to go fucking do blah, blah, blah? Or are you available for this or that? And so it's just balancing those three things on top of whatever else pops up. Because, you know, the most random shit fucking pops up. Like doing a session for a friend of mine that used to play in that band, Hollywood Undead. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not really my band, not really my style of music or my thing, but it's just like, random you know what i mean like okay cool like yeah you, you're doing a solo record you want to release some stuff okay cool yeah you want me to play drums on some fun? yeah totally but let's do it check out greg puchano's solo record when it comes out it features mr chris hornbook uh-huh. uh once poison the once the music industry opens back up whenever that is we don't know make sure you get out there and check out danny harrison and Poison the Well and Greg when he's touring and what, what are there any other projects you're going to be out there on the road doing or is it mostly those three those three I mean I got hit up to write and tour with a, another another band another <laughs> the, the sort of electronic band situation but I'm not really at liberty to say anything further because you know the way things yeah. go never know but I'm supposed to start writing with one of the songwriters from the band and then you know, probably record either late this year, early next year. But, you know, until we've sat down in a room and started jamming and discussing the terms and all that sort of stuff, um, I, I, yeah, I don't want to say, but there's, there's, an, there's another iron in the fire that may or may not come to fruition. It looks like it will. It's just taking a while because uh, the dude is scoring something right now and then another guy is working on a few musical projects. So, like I said, I don't want to speak to it until... Um, it's a little bit more solid, but there's another another potential thing kind of going on that that could be really cool and open a lot of doors and be really fun. Awesome, and yeah, as a rule, you can't talk about it until it's like out. Basically, that's a hard <laughs> lesson I learned. Whenever something's going on and I talk about it before it, like you it get that feeling apart. in your <laughs> yeah, you get that feeling in your chest. Like, should I talk about it yet? And when you do, it never happens. And when you don't sometimes happens so you just yeah. you gotta go with that yeah yeah it's also to respect for my two friends involved with the, with that project it's yeah. like i'm sure that they want to approach if i'm going to be in it in some capacity whether i'm an actual member or a hired guy or they want me to be involved with like press voters or whatever i don't know how they want to approach it but the whole my whole attitude is like i'm i I've learned by being a hired guy, there's a few things you have to be smart about. You have to obviously, you know, clear social media things with artists. You can't just aimlessly, you know, do live video and take pictures and all that shit without understanding what their boundaries are and don't talk about things prematurely. I mean, obviously I'm talking about it in such an, in such an ambiguous way that it doesn't really matter. Exactly. It's, It's fine, but I'm sure they wouldn't appreciate me talking about running a record you know, even before we stepped in a room, naming them, you know, and it, it, it just, it, it, it just reveals a little too much. And it's, I have to be respectful that at the end of the day, it's their thing and I'm being contracted to do it. And, you know, 
how they want to approach it and reveal it to the world and, you know, whatever they want to fucking do. That's their move. You know, with Greg, it's like, I didn't say anything forever because I was waiting for him to say something. And then he did an interview with Krang and then talked about it and then you know, they posted it. So yeah, then at that point, it's fine for me to talk about it. But prior to that, I didn't say anything. I was like, oh, I just played on a friend's solo record. It should be really cool, you know? Yeah, you got to play it cool. You got to know how to do it. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. Try so keep do doing it. it. <laughs> well, Chris, <laughs> we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This this has been really awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about coming down to Furnace Fest, but that's probably going to be delayed. We'll see. But, you know, yeah. uh, we'll we'll see each other again for sure. For sure, man. Yeah, if we're in the same room. Come up and say hi. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Chris, so yeah, much. Chris, for thank on. you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, dudes. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate it. There you have it, folks. The Chris Hornbrook interview. That's a, another good one for the books. That was awesome. That was really, really good. And that, the the cool part is, is like he's one of these people that's just uh, he's just making a go of it with like making music as a living. Uh, yeah, and very eclectic, involved in like so many awesome things. It was it was just cool. His well, that's the thing is, is I I think his style of drumming lends him lends his, his you know talents to a lot of different places, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily just you know like hardcore and and that kind of stuff. So uh, no, the guy is a pro and he knows how to carry it with everybody. It's just it's just awesome. And you know, just this podcast in general. One, I'm glad we're getting good guests because I, I thought. I, it was just going to be us, and I would just have to talk to you the whole time. <laughs> how many times can we be like, remember that time we went to the Stalag? And yeah. like, remember when we saw this band? But we, we're getting good guests. Yeah. And people are like, people are really like helpful with this thing, which I didn't expect. Like, people have offered <laughs> to get us other guests. Because yeah. usually, usually when I'm involved in anything, people are like, all right, whatever. Or they say nothing. But this thing is like, it's, I'm just really happy with, with the way it's been going. Yeah, you you sent me that text. You were like, "Hey, I got so and so to do this, and so and so asked for this, and so and so." And I'm like, "Uh huh." And you're like, "I always expect people to just tell me to fuck off, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. or just not respond." Yeah. That's what I'm used to. I'm not used to being. I'm not used to helpfulness. Yeah, I, I just I just expect the worst. <laughs> so what do you, what are you up to now? Listen to this. Right here's here's what's going on in my life. One. I have to come in first place in Call of Duty Warzone. <laughs> that's that's the main goal in my life. I just want to win. I've come in second. I've come in third. I've come in fourth. I, I want to come in first place. So are you like, I mean, here's the only thing I, I guess I just, because I'm not like a, a video game person. Uh, yeah. Are, are you, you're playing, so this is online Call of Duty. So you're playing with people from around the world? Yes. Okay. So, you know, Think about it like th- I always thought about it like this. We have kids like uh, at my school that are like uh, one of the kids that I know is uh, like nationally ranked. Yeah. For um, I forget what it is like Super Smash Brothers or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm always like, yo, how much time do you spend playing? And he's like, uh, well, when we don't have school, like eight to ten hours a day. And I'm like, oh, OK. So this is like your life. <laughs> so if you ever sit down and play and you're like, oh my God, that kid beat me or so-and-so beat me. It's like, that might be someone who's just, this is their fucking, this is the only thing they have. Yeah, I, I play from the time I'm done work till like 
nine o'clock usually on nights I, I have on nights I have free of which there are like three, but I was doing really bad. And I watched a YouTube video about how, how to improve yourself. And yeah. I started getting in the top 10. You're, you play on a team with like three other people. So it's not, it's good. Cause it's, it's not all on you, but I, you know, I'm getting there. And, uh, uh I'm, I've been watching, uh, this is going to be really nerdy, but someone made a 13 hour YouTube video out of final fantasy seven, the original. Uh-huh. It's like a it's like a movie of the game basically like all the cutscenes and dialogue so I I've, I've been watching that a little bit every day. Okay. You know? <laughs> this is this is the shit I do with my free time. <laughs> That's I I actually it's funny is uh I I I bought one of those uh raspberry pies. Do you know what that is? No. So raspberry pie is like a, a like you can program it yourself. Uh, yeah. it's basically like it, most people use it for, uh, you can use them for like everything from like home security to like, uh, you know, kind of like modify to whatever your needs are. But, uh, I mm-hmm. run, I run emulators on them and I, I play, uh, Nintendo and super Nintendo and then, uh, Stega Genesis games on them. Yeah. And one of the things that I played on Nintendo and I was like, Oh, I remember this game. I loved it so much. And I went to go play it. Uh, do you remember dragon warrior for Nintendo? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go back and play that game if you have them. Like if you have the time, or next time you're over my house, I'll, I'll fucking boot it up for you. It's a dense game, right? It's oh, a, like a long game. I remember playing that for like months at a time as a kid, and as I'm playing it now, I'm like, "Holy shit! How did I have the fucking patience for this? I don't remember ever being this pa-. like as an adult. I got a couple times where like I, I lost, and I mean, I had me restart like at a checkpoint, or like I got stuck, and I was like. Jesus Christ. I'm like, I don't even know. Like when I was like nine, I was like, oh, okay, I'll just keep going. Or like I had the like the guidebooks for especially Dragon Warrior 2 and stuff. Like uh, I that game, we rented it a couple times when I was a kid, and I would play it for like five minutes and be like, I don't know what this is. I can't play this. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would like it now, but back then I couldn't even comprehend it. Yeah, it was the first game that I got that was like, All right, you're gonna go to fight somebody. And it's like, all right, cool. And you're like, all ready, and then it, a, a, a list comes up and it's like do you want to attack using this and i'm like what the fuck is this like where's the punch button like this is nothing it's i'm you use your spell god damn it is this drug- is this dungeons and dragons is that what this is is this video game done god damn it i got tricked it is so and i have the new final fantasy 7 remake which i'm really anxious that, to play that like just came out right yeah, yeah. And, but i i i I'm still working through Doom Eternal, so I I don't want to start <laughs> another game. I can't be playing three games at the same. Like, see, even I have limits. I'm like, I can't start another one. Plus, you know, I I want to make more time for my relationship. So when I go over there on the weekend, I just I just don't even bring the PlayStation with me anymore. I'm oh, like, okay. I'm like, I just got to take this out of the equation. So <laughs> yeah, it it'll be better for the for the overall household. <laughs> that's it i i used to uh I, when i first started visiting kelly you know so my wife is from like a very rural part of the poconos um yeah. and there's nothing to do so yeah like you can't be like oh let's go to the movies or let's go to the mo-. there's nothing like the, the closest movie theater is like almost an hour away um so yeah. uh when i would go up there i would bring my guitar and i have that uh ivan as prestige like the real like the saber body like super thin one so it's really light to to, to you know, it's not heavy to work with. I can move it around the house really easy. Uh, I would bring it up there. And she finally got to the point where she was like, uh, you know, we only see each other on the weekends because you live in, you know, suburban Philadelphia and I live up here. You drive two and a half hours to get up here. Well, 
whatever, two hours. And yeah. you sit on the couch and fucking play guitar for, <laughs> for, <laughs> for six of the hours that we're together. Like, she's like, it's just, it stop bringing the guitar please just stop bringing it's a it's such a gigantic waste of our time because we only have a certain amount of time together and you're spending a good chunk of it sitting there staring at the guitar you know i'm i'm relieved to hear that i'm not the only person who has done this ridiculous stuff well i'm 100 have to have these conversations yeah no i i'm the worst with stuff. i'm like the most like and i think it, it comes out of like most of the time thank god uh my wife is one of those people that she is not like in public she's very like kind of reserved but yeah. with me and our close friend she she will speak her mind and there's a lot of times where i've done stuff in the middle of like afterwards she like she hasn't said anything in the moment because we're in public but like as soon as we get in the car or something like that she'll look at me and she'll be like what the fuck was that I'm like, <laughs> what and she'll be like are you seriously that inconsiderate do you realize that you st- you were on your phone playing a golf game or you were <laughs> you were texting Keith the entire time we were supposed to be that woman was talking about I we met somebody at and it was like Kelly's friend from work, I think. Yeah. And we had seen them at a store, like Lowe's or something like that. And I introduced myself and then I like kinda like drifted into the background because this woman was talking to Kelly about like school stuff. So I wasn't paying attention. Well, she mm-hmm. must've like walked off of like talking about school stuff, like in the first 30 seconds and then started talking about like um, all the terrible things in her life, like the recent death of a parent, um, her divorce, like, all, and there's me just standing there like completely oblivious to what's happening around me. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, who the fuck posted this thing? Like, and I'm (laughs) not even paying attention to what's happening. And this woman is pouring her heart out. We walked away. And as as soon as we turned the corner, like she didn't even wait for the car. As soon as we turned the corner and that woman couldn't see us anymore, she grabbed me by the back of my elbow, like right in the inside of my arm. It hurts so bad. I was like, what is the problem? (laughs) She's like, did you seriously just zone out while that woman is pouring her heart out? I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, probably. (laughs) We're, We're clueless. I just we're just clued this. I don't I think that's another thing is is that I it doesn't come out of a place of like I'm gonna intentionally ignore yeah. what you're doing. However, I'm also not gonna pay enough attention to know what you are doing. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm just gonna like I think of it in terms of uh we were at uh I forget what it was. It was something important, like a wedding or something like that. And I wouldn't stop talking about it because anybody that skateboards, when you see certain types of structures, Mm -hmm. um, you look at it and go, I could totally fucking skate that. (laughs) So uh, outside of this, it was a wedding. I'm sure I'm almost positive it was a wedding. It was a uh, a venue that had this really gorgeous sculpture outside, but it, it was part of it was concrete. Part of it was like wrought iron. But you could see from the outside of it, you could totally like kind of ollie up it. You can skate on the top. Like you could definitely do tricks up this thing. And then literally as soon as you were done, like skate the rail on the outside so did of you it. Just keep, did you just keep saying to everyone like, hey, I could skate off of that? Yeah, I brought it up to everybody. Like, were, any they, per- like oh, were they like, okay, fine. I don't know. <laughs> like, and I would bring it up, like, even when it wasn't within, like, you couldn't see it. Like, I was seeing people, like, we were out on, like, this, like, patio kind of deck area. And I would yeah. see people, and I'd be like, yo, do you see that fucking sculpture out front? <laughs> and they would be like, yeah, kind of. And I'm like, you drove right past it. It was, like, right in the parking lot. It was, like, a circle. And they're like, okay. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it had, like, a big concrete thing. And it was, like, shaped like a triangle. And they're like, 
okay. I'm like, yo, do you skate? And I'm like, I should have opened with that question. Like, hey, do you skateboard? No? Okay, yeah, then I'm yeah. not going to go on a fucking rant about how this you can skate. Because even right now, I'm like, what's the fucking point? Yeah, so there, come on. <laughs> yeah, asshole. Like, I, but because you, in my brain, I'm going like, everybody saw the same thing the way I just saw that. Therefore, yeah. I'm going to engage and speak with you about it the same way. Thanks for being here with us again. New episodes are going to continue to drop every Monday morning at 9 a.m. <laughs> as long as the schedule holds and, and you know, nothing catastrophic happens. So, yeah. so please subscribe to us on your podcast medium of choice. Please review and give us high ratings. Even if you want to give us a low rating, Go ahead. You know, we we I'll we be honest we, about it at least. Christ yeah, God. we need to hear the constructive criticism. We know that we're still figuring this thing out, and we know the sound quality can vary. So just bear with us. We're doing the best we can. We're stuck in our houses, you know. Um, so just just interact with us and yeah. email us stories and ticket stubs and flyers, flyers and all that yep. good. Yeah, all that good stuff. Northeast scene at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram. We need more followers on Instagram. And Twitter, it's the ne scene on Instagram and Twitter. Post a story about us, make a post about us, tag people, recommend us, help us out. You know, what do you have to say to that, Tommy? Nothing. I actually was just going to say, I my brain went to another place right now because I was thinking when you said Instagram, I I was thinking about a conversation I saw that you were having with a person on Instagram, and they asked me, they asked you to ask me about a specific record and i'm yeah. I, I i'm looking at the hard drive right now going like i think i might have that i'm almost, actually i'm almost, i'm like 99 positive i have it the heinous anus demo yes i'm pretty i'm pretty sure i have it like, yeah I'm, check I'm, for that we can we can get it to that guy and, and maybe also, we can uh, that that tape recorder uh the, the, i'm sorry the the cassette to mp3 is coming on tuesday so yeah. that is going to be, uh, we will have that audio up of the audience of one first demo tape ever. Um, awesome. pretty soon. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And someone is sending me something special. I don't want to say what it is oh, yet yeah, because yeah, hearkening yeah. back to the conversation we just had with Chris, I don't want to say it until it's actually happening, but if it comes through, it's going to be very cool and it's, it's going to be something else we can share on our YouTube channel. Oh, so, that'd be great. Yeah. So I'm waiting to hear for that. So folks, Email us, tag us, interact with us, follow us at the NE scene. You know, this thing is awesome. Yeah. You're a part of it too. Let's 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 push forward. Let's do this. Hey, you're part of it. <laughs> Good track. Thank Good you. track. I try to look, right. I'm trying to I'm trying to fucking squeeze some shit in here. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for listening and until next time. Yay!